Section 44 of A Half Century of Conflict. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Half Century of Conflict by Francis Parkman. Chapter 23, Part 2. No part of the country suffered more than the western borders of Massachusetts and New Hampshire, and here were seen too plainly the evils of the prevailing want of concert among the British colonies. Massachusetts claimed extensive tracts north of her present northern boundary, and in the belief that her claim would hold good, had built a small wooden fort called Fort Dummer, on the Connecticut, for the protection of settlers. New Hampshire disputed the title, and the question, being referred to the Crown, was decided in her favor. On this, Massachusetts withdrew the garrison of Fort Dummer and left New Hampshire to defend her own. This the assembly of that province refused to do, on the ground that the fort was fifty miles from any settlement made by New Hampshire people, and was therefore useless to them, though of great value to Massachusetts as a cover to Northfield and other of her settlements lower down the Connecticut. To protect, which was no business of New Hampshire. But some years before, in 1740, Three brothers, Samuel, David, and Stephen Farnsworth, natives of Groton, Massachusetts, had begun a new settlement on the Connecticut, about 45 miles north of the Massachusetts line, and on ground which was soon to be assigned to New Hampshire. They were followed by five or six others. They acted on the belief that their settlement was within the jurisdiction of Massachusetts, and that she could and would protect them. The place was one of extreme exposure, not only from its isolation far from help, but because it was on the banks of a wild and lonely river, the customary highway of war parties on their descent from Canada. Number four for so the new settlement was called, because it was the fourth in a range of townships recently marked out along the Connecticut, but with one or two exceptions, wholly unoccupied as yet, was a rude little outpost of civilization, buried in forests that spread unbroken to the banks of the St. Lawrence, while its nearest English neighbor was nearly thirty miles away, as may be supposed, it grew slowly, and in 1744 it had but nine or ten families. In the preceding year, when war seemed imminent, and it was clear that neither Massachusetts nor New Hampshire would lend a helping hand, the settlers of number four, seeing that their only resource was in themselves, called a meeting to consider the situation and determine what should be done. The meeting was held at the house or log cabin of John Spafford, Jr., and being duly called to order, the following resolutions were adopted, that a fort be built at the charge of the proprietors of the said township of number four, 
that john hastings john spafford and john avery be a committee to direct the building that each carpenter be allowed nine shillings old tenor a day each laborer seven shillings and each pair of oxen three shillings and sixpence that the proprietors of the township be taxed in the sum of three hundred pounds old tenor for building the fort that john spafford phineas stevens and john hastings be assessors to assess the same and samuel farnsworth collector to collect it and to that end their fort should be a good and creditable one they are said to have engaged the services of john stoddart accounted the foremost man of western massachusetts superintendent of defence colonel of militia judge of probate chief justice of the court of common pleas a reputed authority in the construction of backwoods fortifications and the admired owner of the only gold watch in northampton timber was abundant and could be had for the asking for the frontiersman usually regarded a tree less as a valuable possession than as a natural enemy to be got rid of by fair means or foul the only cost was the labor the fort rose rapidly it was a square enclosing about three-quarters of an acre each side measuring a hundred and eighty feet the wall was not of palisades as was more usual but of squared logs laid one upon the other and interlocked at the corners after the fashion of a log cabin within were several houses which had been built close together for mutual protection before the fort was begun and which belonged to stevens spafford and other settlers apparently they were small log cabins for they were valued at only from eight to thirty-five pounds each in old tenor currency woefully attenuated by depreciation and these sums being paid to the owners out of the three hundred pounds collected for building the fort the cabins became public property either they were built in a straight line or they were moved to form one for when the fort was finished they all backed against the outer wall so that their low roofs served to fire from the usual flankers completed the work and the settlers of number four were so well pleased with it that they proudly declared their fort a better one than fort dummer its nearest neighbour which had been built by public authority at the charge of the province but a fort must have a garrison and the ten or twelve men of number four would hardly be a sufficient one sooner or later an attack was certain for the place was a backwoods castle dangerous lying in the path of war parties from canada whether coming down the connecticut from lake memphremagog or up otter creek from lake champlain then over the mountains to black river and so down that stream which would bring them directly to number four new hampshire would do nothing for them and their only hope was in massachusetts 
of which most of them were natives, and which had good reasons for helping them to hold their ground, as a cover to its own settlements below. The governor of Assembly of Massachusetts did, in fact, send small parties of armed men from time to time to defend the endangered outpost, and the succor was timely, for though, during the first year of the war, number four was left in peace, yet from the 19th of April to the 19th of June, 1746, it was attacked by Indians five times, with some loss of scalps, and more of cattle, horses, and hogs. On the last occasion there was a hot fight in the woods, ending in the retreat of the Indians, said to have numbered a hundred and fifty into a swamp, leaving behind them guns, blankets, hatchets, spears, and other things, valued at forty pounds old tenor, which, says the chronicle, was reckoned a great booty for such beggarly enemies. But Massachusetts grew tired of defending lands that had been adjudged to New Hampshire, and as the season drew towards an end, number four was left again to its own keeping. The settlers saw no choice but to abandon a place which they were too few to defend, and accordingly withdrew to the older settlements, after burying such of their effects as would bear it, and leaving others to their fate. Six men, a dog, and a cat remained to keep the fort. Towards midwinter, the human part of the garrison also withdrew, and the two uncongenial quadrupeds were left alone. When the authorities of Massachusetts saw that a place so useful to them to bear the brunt of attack was left to certain destruction, they repented of their late withdrawal and sent Captain Phineas Stevens with thirty men to reoccupy it. Stevens, a native of Sudbury, Massachusetts, one of the earliest settlers of Number 4, and one of its chief proprietors, was a bold, intelligent, and determined man, well fitted for the work before him. He and his band reached the fort on the 27th of March, 1747, and their arrival gave peculiar pleasure to its tenants, the dog and cat, the former of whom met them with lively demonstrations of joy. The pair had apparently lived in harmony, and found means of subsistence, as they are reported to have been in tolerable condition. Stevens had brought with him a number of other dogs, animals found useful for detecting the presence of Indians and tracking them to their lurking places. A week or more after the arrival of the party, these canine allies showed great uneasiness and barked without seizing, on which Stevens ordered a strict watch to be kept and great precaution to be used in opening the gate of the fort. It was time, for the surrounding forest concealed what the New England chroniclers call an army, commanded by General Debeline. It scarcely need be said that Canada had no General Debeline, and that no such name is to be found in Canadian annals. 
the army was a large war party of both french and indians and a french record shows that its commander was boucher de niverville ensign in the colony troops the behavior of the dogs was as yet the only sign of danger when about nine o'clock in the morning of the seventh of april one of stephen's men took it upon him to go out and find what was amiss accompanied by two or three of the dogs he advanced gun in hand into the clearing peering at every stump lest an indian should lurk behind it when about twenty rods from the gate he saw a large log or trunk of a fallen tree not far before him and approached it cautiously setting on the dogs or as stevens whimsically phrases it saying choboy to them they ran forward barking on which several heads appeared above the log and several guns were fired at him he was slightly wounded but escaped to the fort then all around the air rang with war-whoops and a storm of bullets flew from the tangle of bushes that edged the clearing and rapped spitefully but harmlessly against the wooden wall at a little distance on the windward side was a log-house to which with adjacent fences the assailants presently set fire in the hope that as the wind was strong the flames would catch the fort when stephen saw what they were doing he set himself to thwart them and while some of his men kept them at bay with their guns the rest fell to work digging a number of short trenches under the wall on the side towards the fire as each trench was six or seven feet deep a man could stand in it outside the wall sheltered from bullets and dash buckets of water passed to him from within against the scorching timbers eleven such trenches were dug and eleven men were stationed in them so that the whole exposed front of the wall was kept wet thus though clouds of smoke drifted over the fort and burning cinders showered upon it no harm was done and the enemy was forced to other devices they found a wagon which they protected from water and bullets by a shield of planks for there was a sawmill hard by and loaded it with dry faggots thinking to set them on fire and push the blazing machine against a dry part of the fort wall but the task proved too dangerous for say stevens instead of performing what they threatened and seemed to be immediately going to undertake they called to us and desired a cessation of arms till sunrise the next morning which was granted at which time they said they would come to a parley in fact the french commander with about sixty of his men came in the morning with a flag of truce which he stuck in the ground at a musket shot from the fort and in the words of stevens said if we would send three men to him he would send as many to us stevens agreed to this on which two frenchmen and an indian came to the fort and three soldiers went out in return 
the two Frenchmen demanded on the part of their commander that the garrison should surrender under a promise of life and be carried prisoners to Quebec, and they farther required that Stevens should give his answer to the French officer in person. Wisely or unwisely, Stevens went out at the gate and was at once joined by Neverville, attended, no doubt, by an interpreter. Upon meeting the monsieur, says the English captain, he did not wait for me to give him an answer, but said in a manner sufficiently peremptory that he had seven hundred men with him, and that if his terms were refused he would storm the fort, run over it, burn it to the ground, and if resistance were offered, put all in it to the sword, adding that he would have it or die, and that Stevens might fight or not as he pleased, for it was all one to him. His terms being refused, he said, as Stevens reports, Well, go back to your fort and see if your men dare fight any more, and give me an answer quickly, for my men want to be fighting. Stevens now acted as if he had been the moderator of a town meeting. I went into the fort and called the men together, and informed them what the general said, and then put it to vote whether they would fight or resign, and they voted to a man to stand it out, and also declared that they would fight as long as they had life. Answer was made accordingly, but Neverville's promise to storm the fort and run over it was not kept. Stevens says that his enemies had not the courage to do this, or even to bring up their fortification, meaning their fire-wagon with its shield of planks. In fact, an open assault upon a fortified place was a thing unknown in this border warfare, whether waged by Indians alone or by French and Indians together. The assailants only raised the war-whoop again, and fired as before from behind stumps, logs, and bushes. This amusement they kept up from two o'clock till night, when they grew bolder, approached nearer, and shot flights of fire-arrows into the fort, which, water being abundant, were as harmless as their bullets. At daylight they gave over this exercise, called out good morning to the garrison, and asked for a suspension of arms for two hours. This being agreed to, another flag of truce presently appeared, carried by two Indians, who planted it in the ground within a stone's throw of the fort, and asked that two men should be sent out to confer with them. This was done, and the men soon came back with the proposal that Stevens should sell provisions to his besiegers, under a promise on their part that they would give him no farther trouble. He answered that he would not sell them provisions for money, but would exchange them for prisoners, and gave five bushels of Indian corn for every hostage placed in his hands as security for the release of an English captive in Canada. To this their only answer was firing a few shots against the fort, after which they all disappeared and were seen no more. 
the garrison had scarcely eaten or slept for three days i believe men were never known to hold out with better resolution writes stevens and though there were some thousands of guns shot at us we had but two men slightly wounded john brown and joseph ely Niverville and his party disappointed and hungry now made a tour among the scattered farms and hamlets of the country below which incapable of resisting such an inroad were abandoned at their approach thus they took an easy revenge for their rebuff at number four and in a march of thirty or forty leagues burned five small deserted forts or stockaded houses three meeting-houses several fine barns about one hundred dwellings mostly of two stories furnished even to chests of drawers and killed five to six hundred sheep and hogs and about thirty horned cattle this devastation is well worth a few prisoners or scalps it is curious to find such exploits mentioned with complacency as evidence of prowess the successful defence of the most exposed place on the frontier was welcome news throughout new england and commodore charles knowles who was then at boston sent stevens a silver-hilted sword in recognition of his conduct the settlers of number four who soon returned to their backwoods home were so well pleased with this compliment to one of their fellows that they gave to the settlement the baptismal name of the commodore and the town that has succeeded the hamlet of number four is charlestown to this day end of section forty four